It's a real pleasure to introduce David Friedman. Um, it's always a pleasure to introduce someone with a compelling intellect that isn't attributed to their accent. And sometimes I like to say when I'm introducing speakers, this person has written more books than I've read. Um, I don't think that that's the case for Professor Friedman, but it is the case that someone who has written a number of, you know, five nonfiction books and two novels, that is a pretty amazing accomplishment. And when you consider the breadth of his range of expertise from economics to business and law, and the fact that uh, he did author what is really one of the Bibles of, uh, of American libertarianism. Professor Friedman and his family have been persuasive advocates of liberty for their entire lives and great friends of Cato since it was founded in 1977 here in, in San Francisco. And I think we're in for a very interesting presentation. So without any more delay, please join me in offering a warm welcome to David Friedman. What I want to talk about today is the term market failure. Like a lot of technical terms, it sounds self-explanatory and isn't. Uh, I'm pretty sure that there are a lot of people in the world who think they understand the theory of relativity, except for the mathematical details, right? The theory of relativity says everything is relative. I understand that. That's not what the theory of relativity says. And similarly, market failure sounds like it means situations where markets fail, and that's not what it means. There are situations where markets produce undesirable outcomes that aren't market failure, and as I'm going to argue today, lots and lots of examples of market failure are not occurring on markets, as we usually use the term. So what I want to try to do is to first explain what market failure is, to argue that it is real and relevant to many different things, and in particular, that market failure is a legitimate argument against laissez-faire and for government, but a stronger argument for laissez-faire and against government. And I will see if I can persuade you of that apparent paradox. And we start with a problem that's central to economics, and that's what we refer to as the coordination problem. That to get anything done in a complicated society, you have to get millions of people to cooperate. Uh, the classic example that probably many of you have heard is making a pencil. That pencil requires wood, wood requires chainsaws to cut down the trees, chainsaws require steel and gasoline and copper and all sorts of other things. If you trace the, the tree of back of everything that goes into that pencil, millions of people have to somehow cooperate. You've got to make sure that there's enough iron ore mined to make the amount of steel that's needed to make the chainsaws, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there are really only two approaches to solving that problem, and one of them doesn't work. Uh, the obvious approach, the one that doesn't work, is centralized coordination. You have somebody at the top who says, all right, you mine this amount of ore, and you mine this amount of coal, and you make this amount of steel, and you do this, and you do that. And that, that solution works for very small groups. Uh, my, I presume, I've never actually been a football player, 
but I assume that a noticeable amount of what's happening in a football game is actually planned by the, by the coach, although a good deal of it is improvised, I assume, by the players. But as the, as the team gets larger and larger, that system works worse and worse for familiar reasons. You're trying to funnel too much information through one bottleneck at the top, and the person at the top doesn't have all the information, can't get all the information that the individuals at the bottom have, which is basically why the Soviet Union eventually collapsed. Uh, the method that works is some form of decentralized coordination in which you somehow break the problem up so that each person is solving a little tiny bit of it for which he has the information to solve. And in order for that to work, you need to find some way in which those individuals have the right incentives. You need some way so that if I take the action that benefits me, it will also be the action that in some net sense benefits us. So that the decentralized coordination is acting in the way that a perfectly wise central planner would act. That's one way at least that the economists look at it. And it's not trivial how you do it, how you arrange things so that what is in my interest is in our interest. And the short answer, and to justify it takes about a year of price theory, is that a market society, when it's working properly, uh, is so set up that the price of anything I use as an input is a measure of the human cost to all of the people who either had to do something to produce that input or would like to have used that input instead, but I'm bidding it away from them. So that the prices of my inputs are a signal of the cost of what I'm doing. The price I can sell my output for is a signal of the value to the person who gets the output. Thus, the difference between the price I can sell something for and the price it costs me to make it is the net benefit to everybody else in the world of what I'm doing. There are in addition costs to me. If net benefit to everyone in the world minus cost to me is positive, it pays me to do it. The profit I'm getting is worth the effort of getting it. If negative, it doesn't. So that gives us the right answer. That gives us a coordination of billions of people all cooperating with each one making individual decisions. So that's, that's why it does work. The question is why doesn't it work? And market failure is the answer to that. Market failure, as I think the term should be used, describes those situations where individually rational action does not lead to group rational action. And let me start with my favorite example. You are one of a line of 10,000 men with spears. It's about 1,000 years ago. Uh, spears are useful military technology. Uh, you're all pointing them that way. And the reason you're pointing them that way is there's another 10,000 men with spears coming at you on horseback. And you do a very quick cost-benefit calculation. And you say, if all of us stand and we keep our spears planted, with luck we can break their charge, and some of us will die, but most of us will live. If we run, horses run faster than we do. I should stand. I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I said we. I don't control him and him. If everyone else stands and I run, one person out of 10,000 has almost no effect on the chance that we'll stop their charge, but I won't be one of the ones killed. If everybody else runs and I stand, I'm dead. <laughs> Whatever everybody else is doing, I'm better off running. Everybody sees the logic of that, everybody runs, and most of us die. 
welcome to the dark side of rationality. <laughs> All right? It's a nice dramatic example, but it's a very general point. Uh, many of you who have taken courses in economics or in game theory are familiar with the story that's called the prisoner's dilemma. And the basic idea is that two prisoners commit a crime, they're caught, the DA does not have enough evidence to convict them of the crime, but he has enough evidence to convict them of something lesser, of resisting arrest perhaps. He goes to the criminal separately and he says to each one, if you confess and he doesn't, well, I'll convict you, but I'll give you the lightest sentence I can, just, just five years in, in prison. But, no, yes, right, but if you both, no, I've got it wrong, sorry, sorry, I've been doing this for too long. Uh, <clears throat> if you keep your mouth shut and he confesses, I'll throw the book at you, because then I can convict you, 10 years in prison. If you keep your mouth shut and he keeps his mouth shut, I can't convict you of this, but you'll get a year in prison for uh, resisting arrest. If you confess and he doesn't, however, I'll let you off with a tap on the wrist, six months suspended sentence. Uh, you work it out, the way he sets up the numbers is such that whatever the criminal does, I'm better off confessing. If the other criminal confesses, if I confess, I'm gonna get five years, but if I don't, I'll get 10 years. If the other criminal doesn't confess, then by confessing, I get let off with a very minor sentence. So both of us confess and both of us get five years. Whereas if we both kept our mouths shut, we would have only gotten one year, because that's all the DA can get. And that's the two-person version of market failure. That's a case where each person makes the correct decision and they're both worse off as a result. Uh, let me give you one more example, and this is one which is immediately relevant to probably everybody in this room, and that's the question of voting. There is what I like to think of as the civics class model of democracy. And in that model, the reason democracy works is that if the politicians don't do the right things, we vote them out. And for that to work, the individual voter has to know both what is the right thing and what each of the politicians he is voting for or against actually does. Uh, for some reason, politicians never run as the bad guy. Trump comes closer to that than anybody else, I guess. But, but nonetheless, he really thinks he's the good guy, too. A different kind of good guy. Uh, but so that means that in order for you to do what the model assumes, the individual voter has to put a lot of time and effort into both evaluating what government is doing and following what his individual congressperson is doing. Uh, from time to time, I ask a group of students, all of them old enough to vote, how many of them know the name of their congressman, and it's generally a minority. And I then say, well, that's all right, the majority are right. That is to say, there is no rational reason, unless you enjoy watching politics as a spectator sport, there's no rational reason why you should know the name of your congressman, because after all, your vote has one chance in 100,000 of deciding whether he wins the election. Your vote in a presidential election has about one chance in five million of deciding who wins the election. In California, it's got zero chance, as it happens, given. So, <coughs> therefore, there is no payoff to being a well-informed voter. There is a sizable cost, so it makes no sense to do it. So that's a case, again, of market failure on the political market this time, that it is in the rational interest not to do what everybody has to do for democracy to work. All right? So those are all examples of the same pattern. Now let me point out that whether or not you have market failure, 
sometimes depends on the details of how the game is set up. So that sometimes, though not always, if you're clever, you can engineer around market failure. And my favorite example of that is the story uh, of two Bedouin and a wise man. The two Bedouins are riding their camels through the desert of Arabia with the uh, nearest water two miles, the, the oasis is two miles, is two miles away. And one of them starts complaining about his camel. This snail disguised as a camel has got to be the slowest beast in all of Arabia. And the other Bedouin says, you think your camel is slow? Let me tell you, this piece of rock disguised as a camel has got to be even slower than your snail. And they get into an argument, and they agree on a bet. They bet one golden dinar, which will be paid by, whoever, by whichever side, whichever Bedouin's camel gets to the oasis first, to the Bedouin whose camel gets to the oasis second. That is to say, the person whose camel is slower wins the bet. And if you think about the logic of the situation, you can see that the first Bedouin goes slowly, and the second Bedouin goes more slowly, and the first one goes more slowly still, and an hour later, there are two Bedouins sitting their camels stock still in the blazing sun in the middle of the Arabian desert with the oasis still a mile away. And at this point, a wise man comes walking by. And the wise man says, why are you two idiots sitting your camels in the blazing sun in the middle of the Arabian desert? And the two Bedouins get off their camels to explain the problem. And he says two words to them. And they leap back on the camels and race off to the oasis as fast as ever they can. What are the two words? Switch camels. Now it's each one's incentive to run as fast as possible instead of as slow. So I like, it's, an, it's a neat little story, but it also illustrates the fact that a very small change suddenly aligns the incentives to get the right incentives instead of the wrong. Let me give you an uh, example a little closer to here. Uh, if you happen to be in the San Jose area, there is a very good Japanese restaurant called Yuki Sushi, which we go to often. And you can imagine two models for running that restaurant. One model is a democratic model. You have, let us say, a thousand people who like Japanese food, and they vote on what's going to be on the menu and whether to fire the chef and whether to expand the restaurant and things like that. And if that was the way Yuki Sushi were run, it would not be the best Japanese restaurant in our area by a large margin for exactly the same reason that democracy doesn't work, because you can work it for yourself. The way Yuki Sushi is actually run is what I like to refer to as competitive dictatorship. This is the way we run restaurants and hotels and lots of other things. That is to say, the owner of Yuki Sushi has an absolute control over the menu, and I have an absolute control over whether I eat there. So that's a case where switching from the democratic model to the private property and exchange model suddenly switches you from a market failure to a market success situation. Uh, let me now get to the political issue. Economists offer market failure as an argument in favor of government regulation and against laissez-faire for a perfectly straightforward reason, that given the existence of market failure, sometimes individually rational actions do not lead to group rational actions. Hence, sometimes uh, the individuals will take the action that does not maximize welfare for all of us and thus a sufficiently wise and benevolent ruler could improve on the outcome uh, of, of a laissez-faire system. Uh, that's the basic argument. There are some standard examples you're probably familiar with. The public good problem, which Terence Keeley mentioned, uh, that 
a public good, the important feature of a public good for my purposes is that the person who produces it can't control who gets it. So if you have a good such that if you produce it at all, it will be available to all the members of a pre-existing group of people, then you can't use the normal mechanism of charge somebody to get it, that transmits the value to him back to me and gives me an incentive to produce it, and therefore we would expect public goods to be underproduced. That's the correct argument. Now, sometimes, again, you can engineer around that one. Uh, it's clear, for example, that a radio broadcast is a pure public good with a very large public, hence there are no private radio broadcasts. Right? Doesn't seem to be true. Why isn't it true? Because some unknown genius thought up the idea of producing not one public good but two, one public good with a positive cost of production and a positive value to the consumer, which we call a radio program, and one public good with a negative cost of production and a negative value to the consumer, which you call an advertisement. It has a negative cost of production because somebody will pay the station to put it on. Produce both of them, tie them tightly together, and give away the package. And that's how radio and television uh, get produced. So that's one example where a clever person uh, solves the problem. Uh, the a slightly different version, which is another standard argument against the free market and for government intervention is externalities, uh, where I take an action which either provides a benefit, that's Terence's uh, basic research argument that he's rejecting, but that's the argument, it provides a benefit to other people, or imposes the cost, that's the standard air pollution story. In either case, I as an individual don't get to collect the benefit or be charged for the cost. I therefore leave that benefit and that cost out of my calculation or deciding what to do. So if, I'm, if what I do produces a positive externality, it may not pay me to do it even though it's worth doing. If it produces a negative externality, it might pay me to do it even though it's not worth doing. And those are both perfectly legitimate arguments for why individual action on a private free market system will sometimes produce suboptimal results. And again, you can sometimes solve externality problems by being clever. For example, if you think about how a shopping mall works, the owner of the mall is taking account of the externalities that the various stores in the mall provide for each other, positive or negative, because the externality provided by the late night movie theater as a benefit to the late night restaurant means you can charge more rent to the movie theater and the other way around for the restaurant. So it pays the owner of the mall to try to take account of all of these externalities and coordinate. But that's a particular case. And the basic argument that's made against us is correct. That is to say, there is no guarantee that we will always get the optimal result because there will be some market failure cases that nobody finds a clever way of engineering around. And in those cases, the unregulated market will produce a worse result than would a sufficiently wise and benevolent uh, and powerful regulator. The problem, of course, is that we have a striking shortage of sufficiently wise, powerful, and benevolent regulators. Uh, and therefore, what I think is the correct response to this argument is not to deny that there is something wrong with the market. There is something wrong with the market. It's not perfect. It is to recognize that it takes a candidate to beat a candidate and that the argument is not should we find an angel who will take over, the argument is are we better off shifting one decision or another away from the private market into the political market. 
And to answer that, we want to think about market failure on the political market. That rational ignorance for voters, which I discussed already, is a form of market failure on the political market. It's a way in which the way in which we choose our rulers works badly, not because it would be impossible for it to work well, but because it's not in people's interest to make it work well. Each individual voter correctly sees that he has better things to do with his time and effort than become expert enough to, to, vote, to vote wisely. Uh, let me take a different example of market failure on the political market. Suppose you're a member of an interest group which is lobbying for or against some legislation. So let's take uh, you're a lobbyist for an auto firm and you want a tariff to keep foreign autos out of the US. What you are doing is producing a public good, not for the US as a whole, just for the auto companies. All right, A public good produces a benefit, which goes to all the members of a pre-existing group of people, whether or not uh, they pay for it. You can't control who gets it. So if you get the auto tariff, not only will Ford, which is hiring you, benefit, but GM will benefit, and the auto workers union members will benefit, and maybe even the mayor of Detroit and the uh, governor of Michigan will benefit. All right, so you've got a group of people. But it's not a very large group of people. It's a small number of auto firms. And one solution to the public good problem for very small publics is you get together and you say, well, look, I'll do some of it if you do some of it, and he does some of it. If you refuse, nothing will happen. And for small groups, that becomes a workable way of raising at least part of the money. So if the auto tariff benefits the auto industry by $10 billion, they can probably raise a billion or so to buy congressmen. All right. Uh, what about the other side of that calculation? The people who lose by the auto tariff are all American consumers of autos, because they get more expensive, all American producers of export products, because if we import less, we'll export less. Economics suggests that if the, auto, if the beneficiaries benefit by 10 billion, the losers lose by much more than 10 billion. But the losers are a dispersed interest group. The losers are several hundred million people. They have no good effective way of coordinating. If I say to 200 million other people, look, I'll chip in 50 cents if you do, they aren't, aren't going to listen to me, quite sensibly. Uh, so the result is that even if we, the victims, are suffering 100 billion, we are not going to be able to raise anything like a billion to bid against the auto firms for the services of congressmen. Right? This is a very general argument. And what the argument says is that on the political market, the welfare of concentrated interest groups is more heavily weighted than the welfare of dispersed interest groups because of the public good problem. Because both in kinds of interest groups face an internal public good problem for providing a benefit for the members of their group. And the smaller and better organized a group is, the better they can solve that, that internal, internal public good problem. So this is a fairly striking, uh, striking result. And in fact, Let's think about where market failure is coming from. And the answer is that market failure is ultimately coming from the fact that someone is making a decision where he either doesn't receive most of the benefit or doesn't pay most of the cost. On the private market, that occasionally happens. The steel mill is paying the cost of the ore it uses. It's paying the cost of the coal it uses. It's paying for the labor that it has to use. But it may get away with not paying for the effect on the air of the sulfur dioxide it puts out. 
So it happens, but it's the exception. It's the special case. On the political market, it's not the exception, it's the rule. It is very hard to think of any actor on the political market who either receives most of the benefit of what he does or pays most of the cost. Uh, I teach in a law school. One of my favorite examples is my one of my least favorite legal decisions. The decision is called uh, Davis versus Wyeth Laboratories. It almost certainly killed some thousands of people. There's no easy way of calculating how many. And the decision was the result of a group of high-level judges making a mistake that a smart high school student should have been ashamed of making. Uh, the issue was whether or not uh, Wyeth was responsible for making sure that people who got the live polio vaccine, back when that was the only polio vaccine there was, were warned that there was about one in a million chance that it would give them polio. And the judges basically said, if somebody warned might reasonably decline it, then Wyeth has an obligation to warn them. Well, the judges said, the chance of getting polio from the vaccine in one in a million, the annual chance of getting polio without the vaccine is about 0.9 in a million. These numbers are comparable, therefore they had to warn. Of course, the vaccine immunized you for life. So they were comparing an annual benefit of the vaccine instead of a lifetime benefit of the vaccine. That means they were making about a factor of 30 mistake uh, in their calculations. All right. Uh, and the result of that was that for a while people weren't making vaccines because the liability risks were too high. Congress eventually overruled the court, immunized the vaccine makers, and we got back to making the vaccine. I don't know what the actual death toll is, but if you think about sort of a plausible guess about the effect of delaying for a year or two the introduction of new vaccines, it's got to have been quite a lot of people dead. None of those doctors were ever liable for any, sorry, doctors. None of those judges were ever liable for anything. They may never have even discovered that they had made an incorrect judgment. Just like almost everybody in the political system, they were taking actions where they bore almost none of the costs, received almost none of the benefits. Hence, what that tells us is that market failure, which is an exception on the private market, is the rule on the public market. And that's a general argument against shifting decisions from the private market to the public market. Now let me end by pointing out that market failure is relevant to lots and lots of other things. Uh, for example, uh, suppose you are living with a roommate, uh, spouse, lover, whatever. You both like to cook. You uh, agree that you will, each of you will cook half the dinners. And there are two ways you could organize it. One of them is that one night I cook and I clean up, the next night you cook and you clean up. And the other is one night I cook and you clean up, and the next night you cook and I clean up. They're equally fair. Which one should we do? And I only want opinions from people who cook, because it requires some expert knowledge. Which do we do and why? Yes? Right. And why do you do it that way? Right. Because there are a whole bunch of decisions you make when you're cooking. One pot meal or something elaborate, when this comes out and I've got three minutes, do I put in the pot to soak now? Uh, a bunch of decisions you make that affect how much cleaning up there is to do. But that's exactly a market failure problem, that if you have the I cook, you clean up, that's market failure because I'm not bearing the cost of cleaning up. We engineer it around it by switching. When your small child makes a mess, 
it occurs to you that getting the child to clean up the mess will take not only 15 minutes of his time, but 15 minutes of your time. Cleaning it up yourself will take five minutes of your time. Nonetheless, you make the kid turn, clean it up because the rule you have to clean up your own messes is an incentive not to make messes. And you're again avoiding an obvious form of market failure. And you can think of lots of other examples that fit essentially the same pattern uh, that you are organizing things in your life. Let me give you, I guess, the one more from my profession, teaching. And this is what I think of as the silent student problem. Uh, I'm explaining something that I've explained many times before. Perfectly clear, obvious, no problem. And so I then say to the, to the students, now did everybody follow my explanation of the principle of comparative advantage? Nobody says anything. So I go on to the next step of the argument and only discover my mistake when I grade the final. <laughs> What's going on? The student is saying to himself, I don't understand it. Maybe the other ones do. If I say I don't understand it, I'll look stupid to the other students. That's going to lower my status among them. I'll look stupid to the professor, which might eventually affect my grade. So I'll keep quiet. All right. So rational behavior, market failure, public good problem. All right. My solution, which I admit I have never implemented, I'm only a theorist, uh, <laughs> but which could now be implemented pretty easily with current technology. But my solution, when I originally came up with, is you wire the classroom so that in, at every seat, there is a button on the floor which a student can unobtrusively push with his toe. Uh, at the back of the classroom is a sign that shows how many buttons are pushed. So when I say, did everyone follow the principle of comparative advantage, please push your button, and the number two appears on the sign in the back of the classroom, I have the relevant information and go back and explain it again. Right. What have I done? I've eliminated the cost to the student of communicating with me. There is some benefit to tell me he doesn't understand it, so now that market failure is, has been solved. Right. Notice that throughout this discussion, being an economist, I am trying to apply the same assumptions to everybody. I am assuming that individuals are rationally self-interested actors. Self-interest doesn't eliminate some interest in other people. Obviously, we care about our children, our friends, to some extent, even, our, even strangers. But it does mean that each person has his own objectives and tends to take the actions that achieve those objectives. And I'm applying those standards to businessmen, to politicians, to voters, to husbands and wives, to small children, to students, to everybody. Uh, that's, I guess, what I have to say. That's what market failure is. It is failure for individual rationality to lead to group rationality. If you think about it, there are many situations where it occurs. Those include the political world, where it's the normal result. I could give other examples, but for this audience, I probably don't have to. Uh, and it includes the free market laissez-faire system. It's just that it's much less common there than it is in the political market. Thank you. <laughs> Questions? Yeah. So you're talking about the market failure in the political market with respect to democracy. But if we ask who does benefit from nobody voting, then we see maybe it's not a market failure, but designed, in fact, to um, discourage voting. Well, the result is not that nobody votes. That is, you're, you're, 
A point I did not discuss is why anybody votes at all. My point was only that it doesn't pay to be an informed voter. And the question of why people vote is the same, and the answer I think is the same as why people cheer at a football game. That people enjoy being partisans. It's fun having your side. Even when your side loses, it's fun having your side, let alone when it wins. Every four years, there is a game played out across the country with the fate of the world at stake. And you not only get to cheer for your team, you get to play on your team, even if it's a very small part. So I think that explains why people, in fact, vote, uh, why they put up signs. I've got a sign for Gary Johnson on a tree in my front lawn at the moment. Uh, but it doesn't give you any, any incentive to make sure you're voting for the right person. It gives you, if anything, an incentive to vote for the person who your friends are in favor of, because then they'll like you better. Uh, but no, I don't think it's designed. I think, I think there's, there's less design in the world than there seems to be, let me put it that way. Uh, I think it just worked out that way. Uh, the, and I don't know that there's a better form of government, I should say. That is, the argument in favor of monarchy, uh, I didn't discuss the problem of long-term planning, but if you think about it, long-term planning requ requires secure property rights. It requires a situation where if I plant a, a hardwood tree to, today, in 10 years I can sell it to somebody else, and in 20 years you'll still own it and can sell it. Politicians have insecure property rights in their own political assets. So a politician who does things politically expensive today for payoffs 30 years from now is being stupid because those payoffs will go to somebody else. Uh, so the one argument for hereditary monarchy is that at least you have a long-term incentive because your kids are going to collect what you do. And when I make that argument, my historian's son uh, is willing to argue that if you look at the British history from the Norman Conquest on, you on average had less than two reigns without a civil war. Uh, that in fact you end up with conflicts over who's going to control it. So it's not such a secure property right after all. But anyway, uh, another question? Question. Um, your story about the law school students and the secret button at the bottom got me thinking, and I was wondering if we would get a better result in Congress if we never required um, ident vo ident vo identifying how you were voting. If all ballots in Congress were secret, would congressmen be more likely, or senators, more likely to vote in their, what they know is the public interest, even if it's not politically expedient? That's a very interesting question. Uh, it depends really on to what extent they either even know, and they certainly have less incentive for rational ignorance than we do because their vote has a much larger effect. Uh, on the other hand, I don't know to what extent I would expect the, the average congressman to consider the welfare of the entire population as what he cared about. If you think about the degree to which congressmen try to vote for benefiting their state uh, or a particular interest group they identify with, uh, but no, it's an interesting thought, and, and, and I don't know if it would work better or worse. Because the counter-argument, after all, is if you look at my argument about dispersed interest and concentrated interests, you are having a mechanism whereby value to the people affected gets, gets transmitted to the Congress. It's a very poor mechanism because it's differently weighted. So therefore, if the beneficiaries are concentrated and the losers are dispersed, you get it even if it isn't worth doing. But at least in the present system, if they're equally concentrated, you'll tend to get good things. And if it happens the beneficiaries are more consecrated, but it's a good thing, 
then you'll get it. So, the, so the, the, in effect, the political system is a market. It's just a very badly designed market. It's a market where the value to people is transmitted to the politicians multiplied by something between 0 0.001 and 0 0.1. Uh, and then sometimes that gives you the right result, sometimes the wrong. Yeah. Hi, um, I work in hyper-local politics, um, where I see a lot of the themes that you're talking about, um, including the one where the benefits are widely distributed, um, but the activists are hyper-local people, um, especially in housing. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk to sort of the issue of uh, how we draw, so, you know, there are a lot of people who pay a lot of attention to national politics where their vote matters the least. Uh, and no attention to local politics where their vote carries a lot more weight. Um, and so you have a small group of actually hyper well-educated voters making decisions who have uh, very tangible interests and are voting to their interests, but the general good is not always fault, you know, that we draw the lines very small and so those small groups uh, have their benefits very well represented. Um, and I'm sort of wondering how you think this falls into local politics. That is, you would think that the rational ignorance problem is at least less in local politics because you have more effect. But my locality is the city of San Jose. It has a larger population than the city of San Francisco. And so even there, my vote isn't going to have a very large effect. Uh, so I would expect you would again get the concentrated versus dispersed uh, interest effect there, if I understand you correctly. So I don't know. I mean, I suppose if you get small enough, uh, then there are some other problems with very small number of democracies that somebody manages to get control and then drives people out he doesn't like and bribes people he does to support him and so forth, which and there are a lot of different breakdown mechanisms for democracy, unfortunately. Uh, of course, that's part of the reason I'm an anarchist is that I don't know of any good way of running governments. The, you know, people like to quote uh, supposedly from, from Churchill, I don't know if he really said it or not, that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others that have been tried from time to time. And people usually quote that as if it was a defense of democracy. But it isn't. It's a critique of government, right? He's saying the very best kind of government is terrible. Well, that's an argument for doing as little as possible for government. And ultimately, it's an argument for doing nothing through government. But that's another subject. People who aren't persuaded of that, the second edition of my first book, The Machinery of Freedom, can be downloaded as a free PDF from my webpage. My webpage, by the way, is daviddfriedman.com. It's got all sorts of stuff on it, including links to a fair number of my books, those of my books basically that my publisher was willing to let me web, because I write books mostly to get them read. Uh, but uh, in any case, the Sorry, I think I've just lost the track of that. Let me take another question. Yes. The, uh, this is an education question. You sure. mentioned your, your foot stomping, and it made me think, um, you know, if you have thoughts about Sal Khan, Khan Academy. It sounds he, great. I don't know very much about it, but he seems to be doing a very good job of giving away information. Well, uh, he's put forward an idea that schools in general should focus on mastery as the, as the metric, as opposed to a time-based sequencing that at the end, of, let's see who the good ones are. Do you have any thoughts I on certainly have thoughts on K through 12 schooling. I think the current model is crazy. And it's crazy for two different unrelated reasons. The first is it assumes that out of all of human knowledge, 
there is some subset about the right size to fill K through 12 that everybody should pretend to learn. And if you really think about it, there are a few things that are learned in K through 12 that almost everybody needs to know, like how to read. But the great bulk of them, it's nice if you know biology, it's useful information, but I'm not sure if it's more useful than economics. Uh, American history is interesting, but you might learn better lessons from Roman history or Greek history or British history. Uh, and so forth and so on. That is, it seems to me that the set of things that it's really interesting to know is much larger than the set of things you can teach. And that therefore, furthermore, kids in general like learning stuff if it's stuff they want to learn. If you think about the expertise that your kids have in Pokemon, for example, uh, or other kids in other things. So in my view, the right approach to education, uh, what's referred to as unschooling, is throwing books at kids and seeing which ones stick. That is to say, create an environment where the kids decide what they want to know and you help them figure out how to learn it. Uh, so that's the first mistake. The second mistake is the assumption that the way to educate somebody is to sit them down in a room with two authorities, the textbook and the teacher, and tell them he's supposed to believe what they tell him. Uh, that is not a good way of making intelligent, rational people. Uh, so so I, I really... I think, I think the whole model is broken. Uh, I'm in favor of vouchers uh, as an improvement on the present system, but my guess is that most voucher schools would also follow a similar model, because most private schools do. Uh, our kids, the two kids in my present marriage, were schooled first in a very small private school that was run on unschooling lines, where a class happened if a group of kids told a, a staff member that they wanted a class in something. And when that broke down, as a failure of small group democracy, as it happens, uh, we, we then home unschooled them. Uh, and one of my daughter's comments when she went to Oberlin was that what was she doing at Oberlin? She was writing an essay which would only be ever read by one person, and that person would only read it because it was his job to read it. It was fake. Uh, one of the nice things about Oberlin, she eventually transferred to Chicago, but one of the good things about Oberlin is they have a one-month winter term in which you can do your own project. If you get it approved, you don't have to stay on campus. So my daughter, who by that time had already studied Italian at some length, came home for that month and translated a 15th century Italian cookbook. It's now on the web. That was real. So the, and again, her comment that when a class was canceled, all the other students were happy. And what were they there for? Uh, anyway, but that, that would be a long. If people are curious, I have a blog you can find pretty easily. It's called Ideas. And if you do a search for unschooling, you will get my views on that subject. Thank you. Is that it?